But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Last Sunday evening, we looked at the Father's sovereignty, His overarching plan for Jesus Christ, and that is essentially a look at salvation from God's side, from the heaven side. And that was a part of what we're calling our blessed assurance, our available confidence in the Lord, that what He began in us in our salvation, He will complete this work, that He will make it to where we get home to heaven. But today, rather than looking at salvation from God's side, we want to look at salvation from the human vantage point. What does it look like from from our view? Now, looking at salvation from God's vantage point, we've seen the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, the sovereignty of the Father. It really should engender wonder and awe that the redemptive plan of God is infinitely beyond just being about us. But at some point, we do enter into the picture since we're the ones in need of salvation from sin through Christ. And and our vantage point gets us to the question, how precisely did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? And there are only two options. Either you did it or God did it. If you did it, then you have no assurance of salvation whatsoever because you're counting on yourself. But if God did it, then your assurance is solid, it's firm, it's reliable. In other words, if salvation was the Father's choice, then you can be certain that He will finish what He began. And so in the list of objective evidences that we've been compiling, you can have confidence in your final destination. Today we want to examine the evidence of the Father's choice. And man, oh man, is John 17 chocked full With this idea, it'll take us a bit of time to get to all of it. Let's divide our thoughts very simply into three facts about the father's choice. And like our other messages, we'll make our case for the to for the idea of assurance at the very end. We'll return to that at the end, but we need to lay this foundation. Three facts about the father's choice. Here's the first fact about the father's choice. The elect have always been selected by the father. The elect have always been selected by the Father. Now, before we get rolling, if this is your first time at Grace Bible Church, you may be saying, really, you're throwing out this controversial term, the elect, right now, my first Sunday here. Well, there's no reason for it to be controversial. The New Testament has a category of people in Greek called hoi eklektoi, the elect. Colossians 3.12 Christians are God's chosen ones. Titus 1.1, Christians are God's elect. 1 Peter 1.1, Christians are those who are elect. Luke 18.7, his elect. Matthew 24.22, for the sake of the elect. Matthew 24.31, gather the elect. So we're in very good company. Paul, Peter, and Jesus all refer to believers as the elect. So the elect have always been selected by the Father. Now where do we see this? 
just about everywhere in John 17. Verse 6, speaking of the people who would be saved, Jesus says to the Father, yours they were. Now this is important. They were is, is a basic Greek word that means to be, to exist. Yours, ownership. They were an actual group that existed. Now, you began your existence at your conception, and yet you're called those already selected by the Father. You're spoken of as if you already existed. There's never a sense in which this to be verb in Greek is potential. It's always actual. It would be a completely different verb form if yours they might be. That's a totally different verb. So that's in verse 6. How about verse 9? Again in verse 9, indicating ownership and selection. The ones who will come to faith in Christ, they are yours. There's ownership. Showing the partnership between God the Father and God the Son. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And again, Jesus is not praying on behalf of his disciples, but for all the elect. Verse 20 I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. Now, literally in Greek, it it says, but on behalf of the believing. Now, let me just do a quick little grammar lesson, and you don't have to remember this, but there's a point to it. On behalf of the believing. Believing is is a participle. That's an ing verb that's used as a noun, and it's the object of the preposition on behalf of. It's one word in Greek. What does that mean? It means that on behalf of has real substance, not potential substance. Translation, there is an actual list of those who will believe, not a potential list of those who might believe. Big difference. There's no such thing as the potentially saved. Now, this gets us into the realm of those who might say, God didn't choose who would be saved. He simply knew who would be saved. So let's start to deal with that. We never want to grow weary of revealing, re- reviewing rather the, the fundamentals of our faith. So today is going to include for what some of you may be review, but we never tire of hearing the truth. This is why I love preaching at Grace Bible Tr- Church, because you love the truth. You enjoy the truth and you cherish the truth. And so we're going to cherish what for some of you might be fundamental, but these are truths nonetheless that need to be deeply implanted in our hearts So this first fact that the elect have always been selected by the Father gets us into the theological realm of predestination. Predestination, the the idea that God made a selection of believers. The reformers of the 16th century were unanimous in regards to the doctrine of predestination. The confessions of the Reformation of the, the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century they're, they're extremely consistent in this as well. Where do we see predestination in Scripture? Many, many places, but two or three really stand out. The Apostle Paul is explicit about the fact that God has made a choice of believers. When? Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us. For adoption to himself. The believer in Christ has been appointed. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. The Apostle Paul knew that they'd been chosen 
because they believed. They didn't believe in order to be chosen, but rather that they were shown to be chosen because they believed. The Apostle Peter borrows from the Old Testament in the first Peter two nine asserts that the believer is, quote, a chosen race. Luke, in his account of the gospel preaching of Paul and Barnabas to non-Jews, he reports in Acts 13.48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And I want you to notice that Luke mentions the fact of predestination almost as a matter of routine. Like, of course, that the ones who believed did so because they were appointed to eternal life. Now, the crux of predestination speaks of the knowledge of God, what God knows. And so it's worth a little time and effort to show you the language of predestination. And I'm going to get into the weeds and into some technical words here. You don't need to try to remember this. It's just to make one point that there's no way to argue against this doctrine. So let me just go through some of the richness of the language of the Father's choice. And and again, the specifics are just there to prove our point. We could look at the Hebrew term yada, yada. It means simply to know, but very often it's also accompanied in a richer sense of knowledge that goes with loving care. Knowledge with loving care. I know that I drive a certain car. It doesn't mean I love that car, but this is knowledge that's accompanied by love. And it's a sense that's used when speaking of God choosing a person or choosing a people. Speaking of Abraham, God says in Genesis eighteen nineteen, For I have chosen him, Yada, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. That's love. That's knowledge that's accompanied by love and care. Amos 3, verse 2, God says to Israel, You only have I known, Yada, in all the families of the earth. There, there's, there's an intimacy to this knowledge. We could go to the New Testament and consider the Greek term prognosko, and this means to know ahead of time. It's not just intellectual knowledge or foresight, but it's selective knowledge that regards someone with grace and with favor and makes them the object of love. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, Praganasco, who he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 11.2, God has not rejected his people, that's Israel, whom he foreknew. That's not just, that's not just knowledge without love. 1 Peter 1.2, we are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is everywhere. And by the way, all those passages would completely lose their meaning if Praganasco simply means God's advanced knowledge of something. Because of whom does he have advanced knowledge? Everyone. And so it doesn't mean anything if it's not accompanied by by love and by favor and by grace and by selection. We could consider two similar Greek terms, eklage and eklegomai. These words speak of the choice of God in eternity of those who will be saved, but it's a choice made, you ready for this, with delight and pleasure. It's a delightful choice, placing those chosen now in in special relationship to himself, to choose for himself is what eklegomai means, to choose for me, God would say. 
Speaking of Jacob and Esau and God's choice of Jacob, Paul says in Romans beginning Romans 9, beginning in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election, eklage, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Then speaking of Israel in Romans 11, verse 5, Paul says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen, eklage, by grace. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose, eklegomai, to choose for oneself, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Or we could consider the Greek term hereomai, which means to prefer, to choose a preference, to select. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says of the brothers in Christ, God chose you, God preferred you. There's the Greek term in various forms, praorizo, meaning predestined to a specific end, to a specific goal. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What's the goal? To be conformed to the image of his Son. The believers in Jerusalem prayed in Acts 4.28, speaking of God's plan for the sacrifice of Christ, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What was the goal? It was Christ making it all the way to the cross. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us. What's the goal? For adoption. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have predestined, we have, we have obtained an inheritance rather, having been predestined. What's the goal? According to the purpose of him. It's to demonstrate the purpose of the will of God. Then we have the Greek term prothesis. Means the setting forth of a plan. The carrying out of a plan. Speaking again of Jacob and Esau back to Romans 9.11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose, prothesis, of election might continue. Ephesians 1.11, again, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, the setting forth of a plan of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Ephesians 3.11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I, I tell you all that just to tell you that there's never a moment where God went, hmm, I wonder what should go in this blank. That has never happened. He's completely determined everything down to the last detail. God has never made up his mind about anything. By the way, did you notice that many of those terms appear together? What is that doing? It's like, it's like sewing together two pieces of cloth with double and triple and quadruple stitches. It's like attaching two pieces of wood with glue and nails and screws and, and rivets and anything you can find. It, it proves indelibly in our hearts that the knowledge of God and predestination is not passive knowledge. It is active knowledge which acts in love and with predetermination. The first fact about the Father's choice, the elect have always been selected by the Father. Let me give you a second fact. The elect are a gift from the Father to the Son. The elect are a gift from the Father to the Son. And John 17 explodes with this fact seven times over. 
As Jesus prays to his father, he speaks of the elect as the father's gift to the son. And and we'll just rifle through this. Verse 2, all whom you have given him. Verse 6, to the people whom you gave me. Verse 6, you gave them to me. Verse 7, everything that you have given me. Verse 9, whom you have given me. Verse 11, which you have given me. Verse 24, whom you have given me. Is there any doubt? There's no doubt. This is undeniable. And this, of course brings us directly to the idea of election itself. Since the gift of the Father must have some guaranteed content to it. Election is, of course, very related to predestination. If predestination speaks to the active knowledge of God in selecting the elect, then election speaks of the actual selection itself. Predestination is the knowledge of the selection, election is actual selecting of those who would be saved. And let me give you a short definition of election. We could call definition the eter- uh, election rather the eternal act of God by which he sovereignly chooses a certain number of people to receive his grace and salvation through no merit or work of their own. I'll say that one more time. The eternal act of God by which he sovereignly chooses a certain number of people to receive his grace and salvation through no merit or work of their own. The terms election and the elect are simply English transliterations of some of the Greek words we've already heard. Eklegomai, to choose, 22 times in the New Testament. Eklektos, an individual that's elect. Eklektoi, an elect people or group. That's also 22 times. So don't ever say, well, John Calvin invented election. No, it's all over the place in the New Testament. So at the outset, it's very clear the burden of proof is those on, is on those who choose not to believe election. In fact, the Apostle Peter was very nonchalant about this. He addressed those to whom he wrote in 1 Peter as to those who were elect. There's no asterisk with a big footnote saying, let me explain election to you. That was just, it was just obvious. Now, if you're searching the scriptures for an explanation of election, of all the reasons for election, you will find precisely one. And that is the love of God. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, even as he chose us, eklegomai, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us. And of course, we read this text this morning that was on purpose of Israel, God proclaimed in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It's his choice. And so at the outset, we must assert that election is unconditional. You did nothing to merit election. There's nothing in humanity which predisposes God to choose some and not others. As a matter of fact, we could almost make the case from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that if we were wondering who God chooses, we would think God mostly chooses the weirdos of the world to be saved. That's who he chooses. Now, I think it might be helpful to you to look at some of the misconceptions of the doctrines of election. I want you to be well grounded in this. I want you to be well versed in in how to answer the the critic because election is everywhere in scripture and i've said this before i think it's among the easiest doctrines to prove really because you can kind of let your bible fall open and find the sovereignty of god and him making choices that and not asking anybody's opinion about them 
Nevertheless, let me do a few misconceptions. We'll do four of them and, and maybe help you understand how to answer these. Misconception number one. Well, the Bible says God saves everyone. The Bible says God saves everyone. And they would quote 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved. Or they might quote 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. That sort of sounds like God is going to save everyone, but those verses don't say anything about who God is actually going to save. They simply invite repentance. That's all they're doing. And here we must make a logical observation about the will of God. Listen carefully. If we agree that God desires all people to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4, we agree on that. That's scripture. And if we agree that not all people will actually be saved, since there is a hell, there is judgment, then the only conclusion we can come to is that God wills one thing more strongly than he wills another. Those two must be true. I'll give you an example. Jesus willed that Jerusalem be saved. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And yet you were not willing. What did Jesus want? What was his desire for Jerusalem to be saved? And yet Jerusalem was destroyed. Three decades after that statement, which was prophesied, by the way, in Daniel 9 and reiterated by Jesus Christ himself in the very next chapter in Matthew. First misconception, the Bible says God will save everyone. No, it doesn't. There's a second misconception. Election is based on God's foreknowledge of saving faith. Election is based on God's foreknowledge of saving faith. Now, we already addressed this briefly when we looked at predestination, but let's look at this argument for a moment. And here's the big verse that those with this view would, would cite. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And they would say, and by the way, this is the, the prevailing view in evangelicalism today. They would say that God looked into the future and saw those who would believe in Christ and who would not, and those who will believe are then called the elect. Using the classic word picture of God looking down the corridors of time, whatever that is. Well, there's multiple problems with this view. and I'll, I'll just label them for you. We'll call the first one the dependence problem. The dependence problem says that this means that the ultimate reason for salvation is in mankind himself. That God foreknew the faith of some, and so God is now dependent on human decision to do something, dependent on humanity, which Ephesians 2 says is spiritually dead. That's that's a major roll of the dice in eternity right there. The second problem we'll call the personal problem. The personal problem, we want to be very precise here. Romans 8.29 doesn't say God foreknew the faith of somebody but that he foreknew the persons themselves. 1 Corinthians 8.3 speaks of the believer being known by God. Galatians 4.9, we're known by God. This is a personal saving relationship. God didn't foreknow your faith, he foreknew you. It's a big difference. 
It's the third problem with this view we'll call the biblical problem. This is an easy one. There's no place in the Bible that speaks of our faith as the cause of God choosing us. As a matter of fact, the Bible says exactly the opposite. The Apostle Paul made a point to tell us that election is unconditional, having nothing to do with human merits of any kind. We've already read from Romans chapter 9 that speaks of Jacob and Esau, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls. This is God's work. She was told the older shall serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. It's not speaking of emotional hate speaking of not being chosen. When Paul speaks of election in Ephesians 1 There is no mention of any foreknowledge of the fact that we would believe. The text simply says, in love, he predestined us. That's it. One more problem with this view, we'll call this one the Christological problem, or it's easier to spell, the Jesus problem. The Jesus problem is, the Christological problem is, if foreknowledge is merely God knowing ahead of time what would happen by looking down the proverbial corridors of time and discovering that you would be saved, now we have a major problem with Jesus himself. First Peter 1.20, he, speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In other words, God looked down the passageways of time and learned and found out that Jesus would come to earth to give his life for the sins of all who would believe. In other words, if foreknowledge is mere knowledge and election is not true, then Christ's coming was a Christmas surprise to God himself. And that cannot be. So we stay consistent. There's a third misconception about election. Probably the biggest one, and it hits our human pride. Election takes away genuine human response. Election takes away genuine human response. And whether we love to call that free will. Some would say that election is merely fatalism, that human decision doesn't really make any actual difference. Or some would say that election is just impersonal. It's that, that we're saying it's just a force from God in which some are chosen and others are not. But election is presented in Scripture as engaging the human being and being extremely personal. Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us. God's offer of salvation is personal and is kind. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The very end of the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, where is this misconception about free will coming from? Well, it's based on a completely wrong assumption. Listen very carefully. Here's the wrong assumption. That human choice must be absolutely free of any influence of God whatsoever. The human choice must be absolutely free of any of God's influence. Can I ask you a question? Is there anything outside the influence of God? No. If there is, God is not God. And God must have created something that got out of control. That can never be. 
Is salvation a genuine choice? Absolutely. It is a choice, if we could say this, brought to you by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit graciously opened our minds and our hearts to the gospel called in Titus chapter 3, regeneration. Some would say, well, this makes me a machine, not a person. Why is it that we take it upon ourselves to contradict God's definition of a person? Who made all the people? God did. So who gets to define what a person is? God does. God creates people. He created personhood, which includes having a genuine will and making real decisions within the purview of his sovereign will and purposes. And honestly, has a true believer in Christ ever expressed regret in that decision made possible by the Holy Spirit? No. The true believer simply says, thank you. That's how we respond. One more misconception. This is for all of you sentimentalists out there. None here, just listening online. Misconception number four. Well, election is not fair. Election isn't fair. What's wrong with that? Well, this misconception is embedded, it has embedded in it a massively wrong assumption about the nature of humanity. And that is that humanity starts, listen carefully, in a morally neutral position. And so that version of election would say that God saves some of the neutral people and God condemns some of the neutral people. And so that's not fair. But the fact is, humanity is not morally neutral. We stand condemned already. Romans 5.10 says, The saved are reconciled to God while we were enemies. Verse 8, while we were sinners. Verse 6, while we were weak. Humanity is not morally neutral. We are rightly already condemned. Listen carefully. Election simply removes the condemnation for some. And God would be well within his rights in righteousness to remove the condemnation for none. And so as Jesus made clear seven times over in his prayer, the elect are a gift from the Father to the Son. Let me put it in terms we can understand. A Christmas present. This cannot be God the Father giving a wrapped gift to Jesus Christ and Jesus hoping that there's something in it. Wondering if there's anything in that box. Listen, if it's possible to be saved outside the idea of election and purely according to the free will of mankind, then it's not only possible, but certain that no one would be saved. Because Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks for God. The Greek phrase for no one means nada, zilch, zero, nil, and not. Nobody. If free will is true, what's in the box that's the gift of the Father to the Son? He would open it and find nothing in there. And that cannot be. By the way, did you notice something? Jesus considers this gift of a kingdom of forever worshipers so precious that it was worth dying for. You, brother and sister in Christ, you are a gift to Jesus from the Father, and this gift of salvation is therefore passed on to you, of course. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Let's do one more fact about the Father's choice. The elect have always been selected by the Father. The elect are a gift from the Father to the Son. One more. The elect are the specific object of the son's prayers. The elect are the specific object of the son's prayers. 
Verse 9. I don't know if this has caught your eye yet. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Meaning that unlike us, Jesus knows specifically whom the Father has chosen for salvation. In contrast to praying for everyone, Christ is praying for those whom you have given me. Now, God does show a degree of love to the whole world, the theological idea of common grace, even to those who would reject the gospel. He, he gives good things to all. He gives water and food and light. He, he gives gospel presentations. He pleads with sinners to repent. Acts 17, he gives the basic good things of the world. But when it comes to Christ's role as the interceding high priest, his prayer is only for those that the Father has given him. It just seems to kind of slip by us here, but in verse 12, Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, here it is, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who is this? Well, this is Judas, of course. Jesus knew all along, by the way, that Judas was a betrayer, that he was a fraud. He was a false disciple. John 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And yet Judas is still personally responsible for his evil intentions and his actions. Matthew 26, 24, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man to have not been born. And some might say, well, that's not fair. That makes Judas a a, a robot. No, he wasn't a robot. He wasn't programmed to do evil despite his best intentions and hopes. He wanted to do evil. And he had a will insofar as he was free to do the wickedness that was in his heart to perform. There's a human element. There's a a divine element to the actions of Judas. This passage, John 17, stresses the divine element. The prophetic word about Judas is fulfilled in Judas. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 109, verse 8, Let his, May his days be few, may another take his office. Acts 1, verse 20, confirms both Psalm 41 and Psalm 109 as being fulfilled in Judas. And yet what Judas and Satan intended as an act of evil, God used in his perfect purposes to bring redemption from sin through the cross. So what, what do we have in Judas? What we have in Judas is a classic example of a reprobate. A reprobate in the truest theological sense is one who will eternally reject Christ. There's no such thing as a reprobate who says, I wish I could be saved, but I can't. I'm not allowed to. That person does not exist. The reprobate does not wish to be humble, nor does he wish to humble himself before the Lord, nor does he wish to repent. And of course, that brings us to perhaps the most daunting part of the doctrines of predestination and election, and that is the idea of reprobation. If election, it even gets quiet when you say that word. If election is hard to swallow from some, then reprobation is even more difficult. John Calvin called the doctrine of reprobation, which he believed, by the way, he called it the dreadful decree. The idea of reprobation offends our fallen, sinful 
sensibilities, but you cannot deal with the doctrine of election of God choosing the saved without figuring out, well, what does he do with the unsaved? What is God's role with them? Let me give you a little definition of reprobation. Reprobation is the eternal decision of God in which he is resolved to have his grace pass over some people and to instead punish them for their sins to glorify his justice and righteousness. Let me give you that one more time. Reprobation is the eternal decision of God in which he is resolved to have his grace pass over some people and to instead punish them for their sins to glorify his justice and righteousness. We cannot say that God has control over the elect, but no control over the non-elect. We see the idea of reprobation from the mouth of Christ himself. Matthew seven thirteen and 14, he said that few will enter the narrow gate which leads to eternal life. That's reprobation. Matthew twenty two fourteen, many are called, but few are what? Chosen. The rejection of Christ by the lost, however, is, review, is, is regarded as a genuine choice by people able to hear the invitation to Christ, able to have a real decision of their will within the sovereign purview of God. Jesus said in John 5, verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus said in John 8, beginning of verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. It is a genuine choice. Now, perhaps here we're tempted to be offended by reprobation because of a faulty assumption. Here it is. The faulty assumption is that God works righteousness in the hearts of the elect and in exactly the same way he works unbelief and sin in the heart of the reprobates as if the ideas of election and reprobation are symmetrical are mirror image to, to one another. And this goes back to the assumption, the wrong assumption of moral neutrality, that somehow humans are a moral blank slate and God makes some of them to turn to him and God makes some of them turn away. That's why the term double predestination is useless. That's not helpful to us. Instead of symmetry, there is an asymmetrical nature, an unevenness to the decrees of salvation and the decrees of damnation. Back to Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? These two verses demonstrate the asymmetrical nature, the uneven nature of God's decrees of salvation and God's decrees of damnation or reprobation. How do we know this? The vessels of wrath prepared for destruction are a passive voice in Greek, meaning God didn't do the preparing. He was just in charge of it. But the vessels of mercy he has prepared, that's an active voice for glory. In other words, God is the direct cause of grace given to the elect, but he is not the direct cause of the condemnation of the lost. He's ordained their lost state by means of secondary causes. What secondary causes? Well, their own sin, their own rebellion, their own lack of desire to come to faith in Christ, their unwillingness to repent. Listen, this is the crux of the whole issue right here. 
Reprobation is not God placing people into a lost state. It is God leaving people in a lost state. Leaving them to be judged. 1 Peter 2.8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jude 4, for certain people long ago were designated for this condemnation. What does that make us do? What that makes you do is to bow before an almighty God who chooses the elect by his grace and chooses the reprobate, the non-elect, by his decree and by their full responsible disobedience of him. Well, there's our three facts about the Father's choice. The elect have always been selected by the Father. The elect are a gift from the Father to the Son. The elect are the specific object of the Son's prayers. All right, now we've introduced this topic. Let's get to the important part. Our whole point this morning is not to win a theological argument or to be right. The doctrines of predestination Election and reprobation have massive implications for us as Christians and really can catapult you in your Christian growth. This is the most important part of of this message, rather. So stay with me. Stay focused with me. Let's be like the Puritans of old. Their applications and sermons were like thick nails and glue. And they stuck it to you. So let's get this stuck to our hearts. I want to give you five implications of these important doctrines so obviously exploding off the page of John 17. Here's our first implication. Election is a source of comfort. Election is a source of comfort. Listen, this is the number one counseling issue I hear as a pastor. I'm in trouble of some sort and I need what? I need comfort. I need something that will help me to walk through this. Well, how is election a source of comfort? Oh, this is fabulous. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28, very familiar to us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that's, a, that's predestination. For those whom he foreknew, there's predestination. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now we're going, we're going to start going from the past to the present to the future. And those whom he predestined, that's the past, he also called, that's when you got saved. And those whom he called, he also justified, that's when you got saved. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, that's the future. What is this saying? God has always and forever will act for the good of all who are called to himself. In eternity past, God acted for your good. In eternity future, God will act for your good by process of elimination. What is he doing now in the present? He's acting for your good. Anything less than election leaves us hoping that God will do the right thing. Here's a second implication of these doctrines. The doctrine of reprobation should lead to glorifying God. The doctrine of reprobation should lead to glorifying God. John 12, beginning in verse 37. John records, Though he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. 
For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, there is a group of people that God, in his sovereign plan, is blinding their eyes, stopping up their ears, and keeping them from understanding. Now, how do we want to respond to that if we're sentimental? We're sentimental by, by, by saying, oh, that's, that's terrible. How did Jesus respond? How did he respond to the fact that most would not believe? Matthew eleven twenty five and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The doctrine of reprobation should drop you to your knees at the sheer enormity of God. Jesus said, thank you for your wisdom in only choosing a few. Anything less than reprobation makes God a sentimentalist who will not ultimately punish sin. Here's the third implication. The doctrine of election motivates us to evangelism. The doctrine of election motivates us to evangelism. I've said this before and it's true. The greatest evangelists in all of history, church history, are always Calvinists. Because election is our greatest motivator to evangelism. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy, he said, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In other words, I'm working hard for their sake. When Paul arrived in Corinth, as recorded in Acts chapter 18, numerous citizens came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord instructed Paul, In Acts 18, beginning in verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, many more are going to be saved. See also Jesus in John 17, yours they were. But did you notice something? Paul was not a hyper-Calvinist or what R.C. Sproul called a sub-Calvinist, who would say, well, hey, if they're going to be saved anyway, my work here is done. He didn't do that. Paul didn't conclude that the many who belonged to God would be saved regardless of what Paul did. Instead, Acts 18.11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. In fact, it's Paul himself who says that unless the gospel is proclaimed, people won't be saved. He says in Romans 10.14, and then in verse 17, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? One of my favorite verses. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Salvation is effected by God through election by means of the preached word. Let me give you another implication take a moment on this this is important the doctrine of election should motivate your worship the doctrine of election should motivate your worship what is the purpose of election in the glory in the in the scheme of things it is the glory of god and we can prove this from one passage alone ephesians 1 6 election is to the praise of the glory of the father ephesians 1 12 Election is to the praise of the glory of the Son. In Ephesians 1.14, I'll bet you can guess this one, to the praise of the glory of 
the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's the purpose clause. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are you elect? So that you may worship. Listen, the Bible says that God considers his own glory more important than the salvation of every single human being. Romans 9.22, God will be glorified in the demonstration of his wrath in the unbeliever. In verse 23, God will be glorified in the demonstration of his mercy to the believer. But those who reject the biblical teaching of election are in essence saying that safeguarding mankind's so-called free will is more important to God than the salvation of all people. Or if I could put it this way, if you believe the scriptural teaching of election By default, you believe that God's glory is the highest priority. If you reject the scriptural teaching of election, by default, you believe that man's glory is the highest priority. Those are the only two options. And thus, election should lead to worship in several ways. It should lead you to worship in gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 4, we Give thanks to God always for all of you, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why are you a Christian? Because God loved you and chose you. No other reason given. It was just God's love, his grace, his kindness. So we worship in gratitude. It also, election should lead us to worship in love. In love, from a human standpoint, how do you engender the love of another by first showing love and kindness and treating them with graciousness and delight and God's choice of us is based in his love for us. And what's our response except to love him for our salvation? Not just to love him for the things he does for us in this life, but ultimately beyond this life. And election should lead us to worship in praise. Praise is the voicing of God's attributes and his greatness back to himself. Listen, if I actually believe that it was my free will, it was my intelligence, it was my decision that brought me to salvation, how could I actually really sing this? How could I sing, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Only somebody who grasps and believes the doctrine of election can sing that with full vim and vigor. Amen? There's no asterisk at the end of that hymn that says, and by the way, I was kind of smart to choose God too. One more implication. This is my whole point this morning. Election provides you objective evidence to give you assurance of salvation. Election provides you objective evidence to give you assurance of salvation. If God created the world but has no definite plan for redemption beyond, I hope a lot of people choose me of their own free will, then God is irrational and he lacks the power to complete my salvation. But the eminent Dr. Louis Burkhoff, he stated so eloquently concerning election, he said, quote, it is immutable 
and therefore renders the salvation of the elect certain. God realizes the decree of election by his own efficiency, by the saving work he accomplishes in Jesus Christ. In other words, the final salvation of the elect does not depend on your wavering obedience or disobedience. I mean, your last act on this earth might be to not trust the Lord. Your last act on this earth might be to doubt him. And so we can't rely on that. Instead, we rely on the unchangeable nature of God, the purpose of God. When did you receive God's grace? It's a trick question. Because if you answer when I got saved, it's the wrong answer. 2 Timothy 1.9 God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus listen to this before the ages began. Listen, if you're not a believer in Christ and right now you're under the guilt and the burden of your own sin and you're wondering am I of the elect? If you're thirsty for forgiveness and relief from the misery of rebellion against God, then you can answer that question right now by responding to the invitation given at the very end of the Bible. The the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It is not your concern whether you are the elect. Just respond. Respond. Would you stand with me for just one moment? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Our Father, we praise you and thank you. We fall on our faces before you in awe of your sovereignty. It was your goodness, your plan from before the foundation of the world that would snatch us from the fires of hell. And we bow before you in gratitude and in love and in praise. For all glory must and will go to you. All honor must and will go to you. And all credit must and will go to you. All because of the work of Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.